Welcome to Close Force, the podcast that really did miss talking into a microphone for the last few weeks. It's, I guess it's an addiction. I don't know. And uh, I'm just going to make a hint at this right now, but I have started working on a new project, I guess a third podcast from the Close Horse Empire that's based on more personal storytelling for my life. And hopefully that'll be coming your way in the next month or so. But even as I was working on that, I still didn't talk into a microphone for like five weeks now. It feels really weird. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 164. And yeah, it's been more than a month since I released a new episode. In the month since you last heard from me, I went to Japan with Dustin. It was awesome. Uh, My trip went way too fast. Can we please start getting more paid vacation time here in the United States? I'm so over it. You just finally get over the jet lag and it's time to go back home and get back to work. We saw a lot of great art, we took a lot of public transportation, walked many, many miles every day, met so many cats, seriously, a record for how many cats I've met on vacation. Yes, I keep track. (laughs) And in my opinion, we did not eat enough Japanese food, but I have actually discussed this at length with Dustin and he agrees, and that was primarily because We were eating a lot of convenience store food because of just some of the places we were going and the days of the week. And if you have more, any more interest in hearing about why I didn't eat enough Japanese food, drop me a line and I'll explain it to you. But it's just one more reason for us to go back soon. And I'm hoping that we can save enough money to go again in October because I've always wanted to be there for Halloween. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, after our Japan trip, I it was like just right back to work at my day job, which has been really intense this year, making me think a lot about work and its relationship to our mental health and all of these other aspects of our lives. Thanks to everything going on with my day job, I didn't really have any free time to relax for the rest of my month off from Clothes Horse. But the most important thing, and no, it's not how much Japanese food I ate, is that I realized during that time off that I need to take time off from Clothes Horse more often. I almost never do it. All of you who have been around since the beginning know that. But it really, taking that time away, even just so I can lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling after work if I want to, <laughs> rather than work on Clothes Horse, it uh, preserves my mental health. And it I don't know, it helps me save up some creative energy so I can really nail it when I'm back in it. So I'm going to be doing that a lot more often. Not a lot, but just more often, I guess. Even though it's kind of hard to think about doing that because this work is so important to me and it, it is really what keeps me going and gets me out of bed. It's all the conversations and interactions with all of you that actually help me cope with other things in my life. But I do think it's good to recharge my intellectual batteries here and there, right? In today's episode... You're going to meet Lisa, the owner of Two Big Blondes. It's a plus-size consignment shop in Seattle, Washington. And anytime I ask on Instagram for recommendations for plus-size secondhand sellers, Two Big Blondes comes up over and over again. So I am beyond excited to have Lisa on the show today. It's no surprise to me that 
the customers of Two Big Blondes are so loyal and enthusiastic because it does such an incredible job of serving its community. You'll get to hear all about that in today's episode. Lisa and I will be talking about the challenges of running a consignment shop, her advice for all of you looking for plus-size secondhand clothing, and of course, how the fashion industry has a long way to go in many, many ways, of course, including the way it does and does not dress larger people. Before we jump into my conversation with Lisa, let's dig into that issue a little bit. Why does the industry do such a terrible job of dressing larger people? And by doing a terrible job, I mean a few things here. One, most brands just ignore that anyone beyond a size 12 even exists. In fact, the majority of clothing available for purchase online right now is a size 8 or smaller. Meanwhile, the average American woman is a size 16. So the industry is making a conscious decision to leave lots and lots and lots of money on the table by cutting out the majority of American women as potential customers. That's kind of a disconnect from everything we know about fast fashion, an industry that an industry that survives by selling as much stuff as possible as often as possible. It's an industry that will abandon any semblance of right and wrong in favor of profitability. So why why would it cut its revenue in half or more by ignoring an entire customer segment? It's the biggest question, right? Well, don't worry. We're going to get into that. Next, brands that do carry extended sizes often carry them only online or in select stores, making trying on clothes next to impossible. Now, as we've talked about here on the podcast many, many times, the industry has experienced a massive revenue drain caused by the sheer volume of items being returned every single day. Returns cost money in so many ways. The actual shipping, the lost sales, and of course, the wages of the humans who receive, inspect, and put away those returned items, as well as process the actual returns in the system that get you, the customer, your refund. And on top of that, this nonstop flood of returns requires more customer service employees just to keep customers happy, just to keep the process flowing. When you're serving an entire customer base online only, you're going to get even more returns and lose even more money. So why would retailers do that? Yes, we're going to get into that too. And lastly, many of these brands are doing a really bad job of sizing in the first place, to be honest, regardless of size. But when it comes to extended sizing, they just aren't getting it right, which leads to more returns, which costs more money, and disappointed customers, they never come back. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. All these important points just in one little intro to an episode. That's how we roll around here. (laughs) There are two main reasons why the fashion industry is doing such a terrible job 
of dressing larger people, and I don't think either of them are going to surprise you. The first one is anti-fat bias. Yeah, it's really that simple. There are brands out there that just don't want to dress people beyond a certain size because they think it damages the desirability of the brand. I have sat in meetings where people have said it's just not aspirational to show that on a larger model. And it's hard to make something look good on a size 10 model. The person who said that former quote, the first one there, she was the CEO of a so-called feminist brand. This is the culture of the fashion industry of many, many brands. I even look at someone like Free People who... I think we've talked about this on the pod before, and if we haven't, let's just let's just declare it once and for all. If you've bought anything from free people, you know a lot of the clothes run very large, right? And that is because that company wants to stealthily dress larger people without saying that they dress larger people, without having larger models on the website, without saying it's okay to be a larger size, right? It's a backdoor way into dressing more people and making more money without actually doing the right thing, the honest thing, the thing that will be best for society and people as a whole, right? How many brands do I think are not extending sizes due to anti-fat bias, either overtly or unconsciously? I would say at this point, it's most brands, especially those with the corporate buying power and budget to do it more easily. Because right now, with so few brands carrying extended sizes, it is expensive. There's investment involved to do it correctly. And that brings me to number two, the other main reason why the fashion industry is doing such a terrible job of dressing larger people. And that is, it's a fear of losing money, of making less money, of just not being able to pay shareholders or reap a billion dollars in revenue this year or all of those things that are just like, that's what capitalism is, right? And this, at this point, is somewhat of a legitimate fear because the companies that have tried to offer more sizing, most of them have fucked it up in a lot of different ways. And it could have been avoided just by listening to customers in the first place by offering all sizes in store rather than online only, using actual plus size models. There's nothing worse in my opinion. Well, no, there are many worse things, but here's one that really grinds my gears. That's when a brand shoots its extended sizing on a size 10 model, which by the way is part of like the so-called straight size range. What the hell, guys? Why are you doing that? So stupid. And then, of course, a lot of these brands who who try and fail are not fitting the sizes properly. They're not putting the time and investment into making things fit correctly. We already know that, right? Because some big brands like Loft and Old Navy have tried to extend sizing and failed, it makes it even harder for other brands to try it themselves. 
It's hard to get the investment to do it. It's hard to make the argument to spend the money when you've seen someone like, say, Loft or Old Navy, who has a much larger budget, fail at it. Extending sizes costs money that retailers are afraid to spend. Remember, they don't want to pay a living wage to their garment workers. They don't want to pay a living wage to their retail workers. They're probably cutting benefits for their corporate workers or laying one person off and letting another person do two people's jobs. This is how this industry works. So imagine saying to them, hey, but we're going to need you to spend this other money on things like more fit testing, research, and development. The fact of the matter is that most designers don't learn how to grade clothing beyond, say, an extra large. So there is a limited supply of technical designers able to do that. That's right now in the status quo. And getting this fit right requires trial, error, models, samples, and time. Time is something the fast fashion industry does not want to invest. Next, extending sizes means buying more inventory, right? You have more sizes. You need to buy more of them. That can be risky if a collection does not perform well. You're looking at being left with a lot of inventory you can't sell and having to mark it down or burn it, donate it. This is happening every day in the fashion industry anyway. But if a style is a dud, and a brand only bought sizes small through extra large, it's less inventory to deal with. But if the brands bought sizes double zero through 30, suddenly they're looking at like just a mountain in one style that they have to figure out what to do with. Now, this is a problem that could be pretty easily solved by slowing things down and being less trend focused. But we're talking about the fast fashion industry here, right? And they want constant newness, which means buying into every trend, no matter how viable, no matter how appealing or unappealing. And therefore, when you're doing that, when you're buying into every trend, no matter how small, you deal with a lot of duds. Now imagine doing that in a whole bunch of sizes. That is an even bigger dud if it doesn't sell. Once again, a problem that is solved by not buying into so much different stuff so fast, right? Next, really pulling off a successful size expansion requires investing in marketing, social media, new customer acquisition, additional models, larger mannequins, and reconfiguring stores to merchandise more sizes. This costs money that is scary to spend when you've seen other brands fail at it. But the thing about all these costs, they decrease as making clothing in all sizes becomes the norm. Suddenly, everyone in fashion school learns how to grade for more bodies. The research and development around sizing doesn't need to be done again because it's already done and brands just continue to fine tune it. Customers no longer have to be wooed because they already know they can buy clothing in their sizes. The marketing costs go down right away. Stores are already configured to stock all sizes. You don't have to do it a second time. And the larger mannequins are already in place. So just making it the norm makes this low risk. And here's the other thing that's really important to talk about here. 
the cost of this clothing goes down as extended sizing is normalized. And that eliminates a lot of the financial risk too. Right now, it costs more to have plus size clothing made than so-called straight size clothing. Sure, more fabric is required to make larger clothing, but the same could be said for a size extra large garment versus a size small, and we aren't seeing the whole industry falling apart over that, right? As a person who has worked at several brands on extending sizes, I have experienced firsthand how difficult it is to do it successfully. That doesn't mean it can't be done, and I have done it. But it took a lot of, I don't know, arm twisting (laughs) to get it done. And just because it's hard doesn't mean brands shouldn't be doing it. But it's like they're fearful of failure, I guess. And everywhere I've worked, when I've come to the table and said, like, listen, we need to extend sizing. Here are all the reasons why. It has been a hard sell, a very hard sell. Everybody at the table has a different reason why they don't want me to do it. And it goes back to those two categories that I mentioned earlier. Either they're just it's just straight up anti-fat bias or they're afraid of how much it's going to cost and possibly fail. Or it might be the mix of the two. Or it might really be reason one, but they say it's reason two. That said, it can be done. I'm going to keep saying that. If everybody did it, it wouldn't be hard anymore. Why are clothes in larger sizes more expensive if the fabric, the need for more fabric is really kind of not the most important point here? Well, it all starts with this fact. Most brands don't own their factories. If you've been listening to Clothes Horse for a long time, you already know this. For others, this might be a big surprise. And I will just say it was definitely surprising to me when I became a buyer. Sometimes brands, retailers, they work through agents who connect them with factories. Other times, they work with vendors who are sort of the middleman between the retailer and the factory. Why is this important to call out? Because often getting these vendors and factories to offer extended sizing is a series of negotiations. It should be more common But thanks to the anti-fat bias that permeates the industry and has for generations, manufacturing extended sizes is still not the norm. Until we reach a tipping point where most brands are offering all sizes, the number of vendors and factories who are willing to manufacture larger clothing will remain limited. And that scarcity drives up pricing because it's kind of like a niche service. Wild, I know. Most vendors and factories see manufacturing extended sizes as too risky. They're worried you're going to have them put in all this work up front and then cancel the order and they'll be left with all of this fabric or completed product. We know that this happens a lot, right? I've talked about this on many episodes that in most agreements the vendors have with retailers, the retailer, the brand, whatever you want to call it, can cancel an order at any moment for any reason. And of course, if a size expansion project is not going well, a retailer is going to cancel, leaving a vendor with a huge amount of liability. For the factories and vendors themselves, manufacturing extended sizing requires larger cutting tables, 
different equipment for sweater knits, for example. A second pattern and grading, which takes time and money as well. And more samples back and forth to get the fit right, if the retailer is actually committed to a good fit. And then also, of course, that risk of at any moment this order being canceled after the factory upgraded all this equipment and, you know, invested money in getting a second pattern, getting it graded, making all these samples. At this point, the balance of power between factory and brand is so messed up that I can understand their fear of losing even more money than they're already risking on a pretty standard order. If producing clothes in all sizes were the norm rather than the exception, factories wouldn't be taking a risk by investing in new equipment and sizing and grading and all these samples. And actually over time, the cost of developing the sizing would go down and then eventually kind of disappear because the investment would be done, right? We, it would just be a normal part of manufacturing. When I was working to get our straight size vendors to ex- extend sizes back in 2012, when I was working at Motcloth there, I was managing the dresses team, which dresses were the biggest part of our business, well more than half. And we bought for all sizes as much as we possibly could. It was not easy. Like I said, there was a lot of arm twisting. We actually, one way we got vendors to do this because they were very nervous was that we subsidized these additional costs like upgrading the cutting tables and equipment, the production of additional samples, you know, a second pattern and grading being completed, all that stuff. We subsidized that by willingly paying more for the plus size units. Now, we charge the customers the same price regardless of size, but we absorbed that cost in order to make it happen. We saw it as a long-term investment in our business and these relationships with our vendor base. We were doing everything we could to get more vendors on board, and that meant being a little bit less profitable because we were spending a little bit more money, but not passing those prices on to the customers. But that... That was more than 10 years ago at this point. And I can tell you that factories are still charging a lot more for clothing in larger sizes if they're willing to do it at all. I specifically think of my last job before the pandemic, which was for a rental company. And a brand that performed really well for us was Love Shack Fancy. It's a high-end brand. And most of their clothing didn't go beyond a size eight, maybe a 10. And I asked them, because this brand performed so well for us, could we get into larger sizes? Could we do a 12, a 14, a 16, an 18, a 20? Like we were really trying to get as far as size 30 within our rental offering. And they were sort of like, well, we'd be willing to extend to a size 12 if you could buy 1,000 units of that size. And it was like, no, I mean, our whole order for this style is going to be like 200 units and you're asking me to buy 1,000 units of a size 12, which isn't even extended sizing, isn't even plus sizing. Like that brand, I feel like just didn't want to do it in the first place because I mean, they already only offer their clothes in like, you know, size eight or size 10. But I also think that they themselves were like, we don't have the financial ability to take that kind of risk. 
Um, and that was just a couple years ago. And I know that this stuff is still going on because I have these conversations regularly with people who are still in the industry. I can tell you that factories are still charging a lot more for clothing in larger sizes. Like in my experience, you pay 2 to $4 more for t-shirts that are be- beyond size extra large. So maybe the size extra large is $10 and the 2X is $12 and the 3X is $14. And if you ask for 4X, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Um, for button-ups and blouses, we're looking at 4 to $6 more per unit beyond a size extra large. Um, and dresses, it can be 6 12 even $18 more to extend sizes. So maybe the size extra large is, you know, costs you $30. Suddenly you're looking at $40 for a 1X. That's a huge gap. Here's the deal. I know I've already said this multiple times, but I'm just going to say it again. If most retailers and brands got on board with selling all of the sizes, these upcharges would evaporate. Yes, larger sizes require more fabric than smaller sizes. We've already established that. That's something every fat phobic person on Instagram likes to come and say when we talk about this issue. And I'm just saying once and for all, yes, we know it. But guess what? takes more fabric to make a size extra large than a size extra small, and we're not charging people based on the size of their bodies. For those sizes, why would we do it for larger sizes, okay? So we've already established a size zero uses less fabric than, say, a size 12, right? As a buyer, I would pay the same cost for all units within that size range. Any cost conversation with a vendor or a factory starts with how many units per size. Then the manufacturer will use that breakdown by size to calculate the total fabric needed and then divide it by the total units being made. And so you pay the same price as a buyer for every unit regardless of its size. The same could be happening with additional sizes. Larger sizes unfortunately remain a niche in the world of fashion. (sighs) It's ridiculous that larger sizes would be a niche and an additional ask. And it is true that when you go to a factory and, and try to write the order in all the sizes, they give you a different price for the larger sizes. It doesn't need to be that way. It's just not common enough yet. One mistake that brands make pretty often is charging higher retail prices for plus size garments than they are for straight size garments. So this will be a brand that's like, hey, we made it in all sizes, but if you're up to a size 12, you're gonna pay $88. If you're over that size, you're gonna pay 108. You see this a lot. I mean, gosh, even Hot Topic has separate product listings on their page for the larger sizes because the retail is different. This is something that really bothers me because it feels like a fat tax. And yes, all the stupid brands that are doing that, that makes the customers distrust you, so knock it off, you know? Uh, And it's all because they just cannot make the math, well, math. Other brands somehow magically managed to charge the same price for all sizes of clothing. I already told you we would do that at Mod Cloth. No fat tax at Mod Cloth. That's because it's the right thing to do. And it's also how you get your customers to trust you, right? And know that you're not a jerk. 
The larger sizes will still cost more to make, at least at this point, because of the way factories are, you know, pricing things out. But a good buyer figures out how to make it work, right? Do you want an example? So this is basically ripped from the headlines. This is the kind of stuff I've been doing for years. Let's say I'm going to order 1,000 t-shirts. 600 will be sizes extra small through extra large. And according to the factory, they're going to cost me $10. 400 units will be 1x through 4x, and they will cost $14. Rather than charging 28 for the smaller sizes and 32 for the larger sizes, because that sucks, I charge $30 for all of them. The company makes the same amount of gross profit, actually $400 more, so they should be patting me on the back. And no one is being subject to this unfair fat tax. It's really that easy. And it doesn't make anyone feel bad. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. 
Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. In my conversation with Lisa, we're going to talk about Old Navy. A few years ago, Old Navy made a splash by announcing that from now on, all of its women's clothing would be available in sizes double zero to 30. And then less than a year later, it pulled out, reducing the number of items available in all sizes and relegating the extended sizing to online only. Classic, right? As I will explain in our conversation, Old Navy actually, in the beginning, did everything right. But they saw the initiative as a failure because they were left with a lot of unsold inventory, primarily because they didn't buy the right quantities of each size. And this 
This is just one of those things that happens. This is something that could have been resolved easily over time by letting the data show them what to buy for future orders. I mean, if no large retailer out there is offering sizes double zero through 30, there is no data out there to help anyone figure out how much to buy of each size, right? So they were really blazing their own trail here by offering that. But then as soon as it didn't work, they walked away from it. Like I said, this is something that could have been resolved by just using the data of how stuff really sold to inform future orders. But Old Navy was unwilling to take the time to get it right. Other brands like Loft and White House Black Market experienced similar outcomes, but none of them gave it enough time to play out. They were left with a lot of unsold inventory because they just didn't buy it correctly by size. And that's something that happens. It happens in all kinds of ways. It can be as simple as we bought too many maxi dresses in a year when everyone wants mini dresses. Or more complicated, like we bought too many 5X, not enough 2X, which is basically what happened for Old Navy. The maxi dress, mini dress debacle is mostly unavoidable. It's just like one of those things that happens when you're a buyer. But buying the correct quantity of si- by size is easily solved in the next round. Any brand is constantly, if they know what they're doing, and I can assure you Old Navy is doing this, they are constantly tweaking their buy by size using historical data. If I were going to start my own clothing line right now, which no interest there, but if I were, I would do a lot of things differently than these retailers. It's like actually the list of things I would do differently is so long, it's a scroll that rolls across the floor, out the front door, down the street, over to the highway. There's a lot of things to do differently. One of those things I would do is I would hire one of the planners who worked on the Old Navy size expansion. Basically, a planner helps you, well, as a buyer, they help you plan everything Uh, how much money you're going to spend, how much you're going to buy by size, you know, when it's going to deliver. I mean, they are there looking at data and helping you make decisions. I would hire one of those people to help me figure this out. I would ask them, how did the sales by size actualize versus what you bought? And then we would use that data to order the right quantity by size. It's just that easy. If all brands were doing this already, or even just a few of the bigger players on the landscape were doing it, that data around sales by size and the best grading and all the other best practices around marketing and merchandising, everything, all of those best practices would make their way around the industry as employees moved from company to company. That's how the industry works. And all of this would be so much easier. But until one of these brands really sees it through, really gives it the time and investment it requires, we will not see extended sizing become the norm. We will continue to see the industry do a horrible job of dressing most people. So what can you do? Well, you do have power as a consumer. You know, one is you can demand a change from retailers and brands who don't offer extended sizing or charge more for it or do anything else really that you don't agree with. You can do this via social media, email, even phone calls. You know, I receive emails regularly from 
and this is in quotes, sustainable brands who want to partner with me or be featured on the podcast. And I always turn them down when I see that they don't offer sizing beyond a size extra large. And I tell them why. I also tell them that I would be thrilled to revisit the conversation when they do start offering larger sizes, using larger models, and doing the work to dress more people. And I'm always certain to remind them that the Clothes Horse community would also love to hear about that and support them because this is an important issue to them. I would also just say, don't shop with brands, no matter what size you are, until they change their ways. I mean, that goes with everything, right? But they're so afraid of losing money on extending sizes. What if they just lost even more money by not doing it? Just something to think about. Also, you know, tell your friends why this matters, why it's not happening, and how they can get involved with changing it too. As I've said many, many times here on Close Horse, two things motivate retailers to make a change. Laws and the fear of declining sales. This is actually an issue that is pretty easy to solve with collective action as consumers, but we need everybody pushing for this together. Okay, well, I think it's time to get the conversation started with Lisa. But if you have more questions about this topic, send them my way. I am happy always to share my industry experiences and how I can see the industry doing a better job on just about anything. Seriously, I could do this all day and all night. So if you have more questions about why brands aren't extending sizes or why they are and quitting, reach out to me. I'm sure other people have the same question and I can share it here. All right, let's meet Lisa. So Lisa, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? All right, so I am Lisa Michaud. I'm the current owner of Two Big Blondes. Um, Two Big Blondes has been around, it was established about 26 years ago. um, And I took over 10 years ago. from the prior owner, Susan, who um, owned it for several years, and she had purchased it from the original owners, the Two Big Blondes, Judy and Winnie. Two Big Blondes is located in the Central District of Seattle, uh, which is where I grew up and went to school and moved away for a little while during college and afterwards, but have moved back to the neighborhood. So it felt... um, perfect coming back to Seattle and back to my community and then buying this business uh, right here where I grew up. So what motivated you to buy the business? Because I mean, I, this is me as a person who lives in Texas, but if it feels like Two Big Blondes is sort of like legendary in Seattle. (laughs) Every time I have a conversation online about, you know, places to buy plus size clothing, Two Big Blondes comes up multiple times every single time. Yeah, um, so I feel awesome like it's kind hear. of iconic, you know? So yeah. what what made you yeah. decide, like, this is the right business for me? Well, again, it really was a culmination of many things, and that's why it felt so right at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I'm a lifelong thrifter. I've always loved thrifting and buying secondhand. Um, I have to say, initially, it was out of just economics and liking to find a good deal. Um, (laughs) I get it. it. Same for me. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, um, you know, and the art of the hunt is fun, you know, Mm -hmm. finding what's out there. Um, And so I've always shopped that way. And then um, I was also, when I went off to school, I uh, graduated from UC Santa Cruz in women's studies and sociology. And I got um, involved in nonprofit work and legal work. And so uh, owning a business was really never on my radar. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, what happened was I ended up um, moving. This is a little background, more background about me moving to the Caribbean. Oh, wow. And started... I know that that's a big jump there, but uh, started a <laughs> started a business with my now husband, um, and we ran um, a little tourist business down there, and so that kind of got my feet wet in terms of actually literally wet because it was a boat business, but um, <laughs> yeah, taking people on sightseeing tours and. Um, it was amazing. Um, that was on the island of St. Lucia. And so that, but that, you know, kind of opened up the world to me of owning a business and running a business. Um, and so um, we lived down there for a little while, came back to Seattle. Um, I was worked in, again, nonprofit world for a while. Um, and then when our kids were small, we went back down to St. Lucia And when I was coming back, so this was about uh, 11 years ago now, um, like I said, we're moving back to our neighborhood. um, And my aunt, Susan, owned the business at the time. And so she asked if I was interested in um, buying the business from her. She was ready to retire and slow down a bit. And um, at the time, it felt kind of overwhelming, but she said, well, just come and, you know, work here for a little while. I instantly fell in love with the store. It Mm -hmm. was, um, it felt like home because of, like I said, the community where I grew up. It felt like home because it was a community of fat people and plus size, um, mostly women, but all kinds of people that were really felt like a community here. Um, we supported each other. We are, you know, help, held each other up um, so that that community is really important to me. Um, I love the running the business side of things. I had done enough accounting and, um, you know, just data entry mm-hmm. management and some of my other jobs that, that came naturally to me. Um, again, my Aunt Susan owned it before me. So she was a great mentor for me for a couple of years, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a creative side because I've done like graphic design before and, you know, some of that creative work. So that was kind of fun to think about marketing and doing flyers. And so it just really all, it fell in my lap, but it just was all at the right time for me. Um, and so it just, it just felt good. I mean, it seems like it was meant to be because a lot of the things that you just talked about, like enjoying to do when it comes to business mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. for a lot of the clients and students that I work with. It's like <laughs> the stuff they dread doing the most. Yeah. So I think if you love doing those things or even have an affinity for it, not necessarily love, uh, it's like a sign yeah. that you should be a business owner for sure. Yeah. 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 And it was different because like I said, I had worked in... Um, nonprofit world before social services. And actually that's another element I forgot to mention is that we do have um, an affiliated nonprofit called Seattle Women's Assistance Fund that 
my aunt had set up, but um, I've continued. And what we do with that is things that are donated to the store. We um, have a program that helps people in need, uh, might be homeless, might be low income, people getting back into the workforce, um, and we get free clothing for them. So there is that social work and community side of things as well. So mm-hmm. um, it's running a business and definitely making a profit is a challenge and something I'm working on too. But <laughs> there really is that community um, side of things. So it feels good um, while I'm, you know, doing the business part of things as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just based on conversations I've had with other people, in fact, I mentioned Maggie Green, when you and I were getting set up and when Mm -hmm. I told her that I was like, oh, hey, guess who I'm recording with? She was just so excited to hear. She's such a big fan of the store. Um, And and you're doing something that, you know, is is not common, unfortunately, which we're going to break down in a million different ways in our conversation. But I thought we could get started by talking about like, you know, Two Big Blondes is a consignment shop. And... I I sometimes I take things for granted that people know things because I have been such a secondhand shopper my whole life and consignment has been a big part of that for me. But do you want to mm-hmm. explain for those who don't know and might think consignment is the same as a thrift store or something, what that is and how it works? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that I, I didn't understand it that well as myself even before I got involved. Um and a lot of people do walk in and they, they think it is a thrift store. Right. And so it's a good distinction to make. So basically, we take clothes um, in from people bring us their clothes. We go mm-hmm. through the items. We decide what is in good shape, what we think is, you know, right season, right trends. And then we sell it for people. So for us, our consignment period is 100 days. And anything that sells during that time, the consigner gets 40%. Um, and then they also get a 25% bonus if they use any of their account balances, not um, store credit. So it's worth more if you uh, you know buy things in the store. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, everything we sell, 40% goes right back into the community, goes right back to the consigners. Um, and it's as items sell. So we don't buy things up front. Some, pe- some models do that where they... Um, you know, you bring in your clothes and they'll give you cash on the spot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like Buffalo we, Exchange. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you tend to get a little bit less percentage that way. Um, and then this way uh, you get a higher percentage, um, but you do, it's as items sell, the your account balance will grow. When you and I were preparing for this episode, I told you a theory that I have, and I would love to hear your thoughts on, that I think consignment and people who are really engaged in consignment and using that as one channel for rehoming their clothes. I feel Mm -hmm. like if you're a consignment person and you're thinking already consciously while you own something and are wearing it of its next life beyond you, you -hmm. actually take better care of it because you don't want to depreciate the value of it. I mean, at (laughs) least I know, like I have sold some stuff via consignment, you know, my daughter, was a small child that was basically how I was able to afford clothes by, you know, selling what they outgrew and then getting new stuff with the credit, right? But as, you know, um, personally on my end, I definitely through my 20s and 30s used Buffalo Exchange and Crossroads and those kinds of places really heavily to, Mm -hmm. you know, 
get my clothes out and, you know, bring money back into my home kind of. I mean, there were definitely times where I may have been using it to manage my finances a little bit too. (laughs) Um, But like knowing that, you know, I was, I, I never ever looked at any clothing or anything that came into my house as like I would be the last person to own it or use it. And so it really Mm -hmm. motivated me to take really good care of things. And I do think that if you have that sort of mindset, it does, I don't know, you're a little less risky. You're a little bit more careful with laundering it, that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, that's part of a shifting um, consciousness that people are having um, more when we think about the life cycle of clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of my experience with our customers is it's really a broad spectrum. So you have some people who um, really take great care of their clothing. They're clearly thinking about a li- the life beyond their own use. Um, they bring it in. It's an amazing, you know, shape. Um, and then there's some people who just bring in things if they if it sell if they can sell it great if not it's fine it gets donated to the nonprofit it's sort mm-hmm. of a way to like not quite take it to goodwill or you know another place where you don't really even know what mm-hmm. happens to it yeah. Um, yeah. um but that's and that's a nice thing about having this um a nonprofit component is people know if we can't sell it or we don't think it's right for our consignment at the time that it's still going to a place where people really get what they need. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that um, as we kind of think about the circularity of clothing and the, um, you know, trying to be better stewards of this earth that we're thinking about not just throwing you know, wearing something a couple times and then it goes, you know, gets thrown away or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, but that's an ongoing <laughs> challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot yeah. of people, and I love that we're talking about consignment because uh, I think that this is an option that a lot of people forget exists. It was actually mm-hmm. really big in the 90s. I yeah. did all this research into secondhand and I was like, wow, I do remember consignment being a big deal. Um, and yeah. It, I still, you know, there are in various places I've lived, there are top of mind a couple consignment stores, but it's not as prevalent. And I think Hmm. maybe part of that is that people are selling stuff online on their own. But I also think a part of it is that it's probably a challenging business. Yeah. If you're not getting more and more people to understand the importance of shopping secondhand. That opens up um, this whole... um area that of course I'm super interested in and I love to think about like why aren't there more of these because Mm -hmm. we have I mean not only just consignment in general but especially plus size we have people who are visiting from all over the country and they're just like oh I wish I had this where I live and um, I get it. It's, it's, we, we are so lucky that um, we have this. And I say we, because even as the owner, cause like I said, I didn't start it, but we mm-hmm. have this in our, in Seattle where it's been around for so long. We have a lot of um, square footage in our sh- store. Um, we have a lot of variety people have known. So they known about us. So they have been coming for years Um but it is a hard business too. Um, and so I have been seeing a lot of even other consignment shops around the country kind of um, 
struggling. I mean, of course, COVID, we can't, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. forget about all of that. But um, where there is, seems to be a, a demand for secondhand is going up. But then I've seen even big companies like um, close or have, you know, be struggling financially. Mm-hmm. Um, so the economics of secondhand is just really fascinating to me as well. It is to me as well. And when you and I were talking a long time ago at this point, (laughs) I remember one thing we talked about was pricing, right? Because this Mm -hmm. is like, I have to say, you know, I mean, you know this too. There is a lot of anti-reseller rhetoric happening on social media. Um, There are a lot of things that people who work in the secondhand industry are basically being scapegoated for like higher prices at thrift stores and Mm -hmm. less product at thrift stores. It's a lot of it is really based on myths and opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But the thing that always comes back is the price, whether it's a price that a reseller is charging or a thrift store or certainly consignment store as well, that it seems that there is a lot. I mean, and it's not even that it seems, I know this, that living in this century in this fast fashion era has really skewed our sense of what clothing should cost what is a value in clothing what is the value of clothing even and you know clothes right now are cheaper than they were in the 90s nothing else is even close to being like the same price even much less cheaper and so you can see like it's really skewed and it seems like I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I put I put the ask out there on social media a few weeks ago because there were a lot of people who seemed to believe that the moment you wear clothing, you take the tags mm-hmm. off, the value diminishes to almost nothing, right? Yeah. And that secondhand clothing is significantly less valuable than new clothing. And new clothing is already so cheap that I think it, it gets to a point where it's it's like if you if you subscribe to that line of thinking then secondhand clothing should all be like $1 and that's right. that that's not going to keep thrift stores in business that's not going to allow resellers to make a living it's certainly not going to make consignment stores work on either yeah. end because in in when it comes to a consignment store like the people who are who are consigning their clothing to you they want to make money back off of it too so yes. it's not just you that it serves it's them as well right yeah so do you get a lot of weird push i don't know weird is maybe not the best adjective do you get a lot of pushback about pricing um i get some um so i was just talking about this where i was training a new um, employee this morning and talking about our values. And one of our values is affordability. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, of course, is very subjective. So right. Yeah, you read feels... my mind. That's what I was <laughs> yeah. thinking. Right. What feels affordable to one person is totally right. different than another. We have people that walk in and we do have some of our designer pieces up front. Um, and so they see those prices and they're like, oh, why is this so expensive? You know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, that was originally $400 and we're selling it for 65 So I get that walking into a secondhand store, they see $65. That feels like a lot. But in, you know, in perspective, it's, it's not. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's a hot right? deal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then other people, you know, I might ring someone up and their total comes to $200. And one person would be like, Oh, my gosh, what a great deal. Because if they go to Torrid, and buy three mm-hmm. items, that's $200. Um, 
you know, even Torrid, so which is not the highest quality. I love Torrid yeah. for the fashion, but um, yeah, that it's not the high quality versus another person will, you know, that 200 is just not, you know, it's way too much for their right, budget. Right. So, so knowing that that is the case, um, and I have had a few people that, you know, if they either online or in person really balk at the prices and I always look at it, it's like, Hey, I'd love, this is a great opportunity for me to explain our pricing structure and why it costs what it does. Not to mention that Seattle in particular is a very expensive city to live yeah. in. And I mean, right now our minimum wage is eighteen sixty nine an hour. Um, and I pay everyone more than minimum wage. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, of course, personnel costs, there's rent, there's all these other expenses. Um, and yeah, it does take work. It's not, um, you know, it's a consignment. So 40% straight ahead goes back to the consigners, but it also takes work and energy to get these clothing out, um, you know, out on the floor and much less to get them online. Um, which is a, you know, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, even yeah, no, more. it's like unfun for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and I really enjoyed that conversation that you started um, because it even helped me kind of think about our pricing structure a bit too. Mm -hmm. um, because we have, for the most part, based our pricing on the original retail and do a lot of research around that, especially if it's a brand we don't know as well. Um, and so part of that is to get a percent back to the consigner so mm -hmm. that they, you know, it's like, well, if they spent $200 on an item and, you know, they're only getting $20 back, that feels a little, you know, underpriced. Mm -hmm. Um, so part of it is based on retail, but it's also based on, of course, you know, uh, style quality, what kind of shape it's in. Um, when we especially get into our vintage um, items, uniqueness, um, and all of that. But I think there is, um, having that conversation kind of even shifted my thinking a little bit about the value of the work that we put into this mm -hmm. um, and, and accounting for that in the price. Um, and then that being said, even with our pricing, we have as a store for really massive sales, store-wide sales uh, a year where we go up to 90 and 95% off. Um, so there's always opportunities to get things for, you know, a couple dollars, even designer items for oh, less wow. than $10. Yeah. And then um, we also have a bag sale twice a year where we sell a 13 gallon bag of clothing for $10. And all of that supports our nonprofit. Um, some people that they come twice a year and that's all the shopping they can afford and that's what they do. Um, and so we have those opportunities to, to reach people that really don't have much of a clothing budget. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously we need to also make enough money to pay the rent and pay right. employees and <laughs> pay, pay myself a little bit, hopefully. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it is a challenge and, um, I, I'm kind of, it's, I'm growing and thinking about it a lot right now. Um, especially because, um, you know, since COVID, we obviously took a massive hit, um, mm -hmm. business wise, and we're still, you know, kind of struggling to get back on our feet and, um, you know, people's, how they shop has changed. Um, it's, it's interesting when things get hard economically, you think more people would shop secondhand. 
Um, but that means kind of bringing in new people that maybe mm-hmm. weren't used to shopping secondhand. So that's a different marketing um, and outreach um, versus the people who have already been coming. They probably are also cutting back at, at being able to buy as much. Yeah, totally. Um, but- yeah. And the big hit with COVID was that people just weren't going anywhere. So they didn't need new clothes. Yeah. And even though that's, you know, that's, it's, it's rebounded some, but not, not the same way it was before. I mean, I feel like I was just talking to my husband about that this weekend. I was like, I feel like we live in this weird in-between time mm-hmm. because the pandemic isn't over, right? It's not at but all. But we've been yeah. kind of forced for like, I don't know, like the last year and a half to pretend that it is. And it's weird. You know, it's very weird. Yeah, it's really weird. Right. Um, And I do think like, you know, someone might be listening to this and saying like, oh, my life is completely back to normal. And I go to parties and I go out to bars and I go dancing and all that. But like a lot of people don't. In fact, I I don't really go anywhere. I mean, I go. I definitely don't go out. I would just say like and I think a lot of people also during the pandemic realized that, you know, they maybe they didn't want to do that anymore. And these are things that, you know, lead to people buying more clothes. Right. They going do. out, yeah. special occasions, weddings, mm-hmm. parties, that kind Traveling. of stuff. Yeah. And even going to work, you know, especially in uh, tech heavy Seattle, a lot of people get to still work from home mm. and they don't have to get dressed up. Not that they were dressing up where it is Seattle after all, but, you know, work <laughs> <laughs> office appropriate attire. Yeah, yeah. Um you know. Yeah, I mean it definitely it definitely is a different time. And I, I I really what really struck me with what you just said is that, you know, as the economy has been very challenging, that's like a really nice way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, people who had who were shopping secondhand predominantly before because of financial reasons are now going to be able mm-hmm. to afford to buy less. And you're seeing this right. new customer coming in who is looking to spend less money, but maybe not change their quality of life. And Mm -hmm. these are great people to, like, it's a great gateway into secondhand shopping. And uh, something that I've learned in my research is that this is like a cyclical thing. Like with every Mm -hmm. generation, there has been a period where more people have gotten into secondhand shopping who were uncomfortable with it before because of the state of the economy and it kind of turns into a lifelong habit for them, which is interesting yes. because, I mean, I'm sure you see this stuff online. And if you haven't, then you're a really lucky person because I have to see way too much <laughs> of it, which is this idea that, like, secondhand is, like, trendier than ever. And these are people who are like, I liked it before it was cool. And I'm like, yeah. it's always been cool, actually. <laughs> uh, I don't, Unless you're, like, 100 years old, then, yeah. you know, I want to hear your stories uh, <laughs> about what it was like thrifting 100 <laughs> years ago. But, uh, you know, it's this is just, like, this is human nature. Right. And this Mm -hmm. is like it's a social trend. It's an economic trend. And so there is this part of me that is like this could be a really great time to get more people comfortable with shopping secondhand because there definitely still is a stigma against it. Um, But I think it's like there is so much of the secondhand system that still needs fixing, you know, and I think a big part of that is putting more equity into it. So you obviously work really hard to make your store equitable to everyone involved. I did not miss that you said that you pay your staff more than minimum wage, which is great, right? And that you are really trying to ensure that both your sellers and your shoppers are getting a good a good yes, deal, yes. right? That's really, really hard. It is. It is. <laughs> I can't I can't say that even after 10 years I've totally figured it out. Um so it's a 
I mean, in that way, consignment is sort of a more difficult model mm-hmm. because I do think like if you look at the places like, you know, Buffalo Exchange, that model where you bring your stuff in, they give you cash or trade and you leave, yeah. right? Like they definitely get away with giving you a lot yeah. less for your yeah. clothes, even though they might charge the same exact retail price that you would in your store. Yeah. But it's it's the convenience of it and the the speed of getting your money right, right? or getting that trade that uh, makes you you know cut your losses kind of, and it's not necessarily a super equitable situation really mm-hmm. for anyone involved except for the store. But you know, with consignment, like just hearing you talk about all the numbers and making it work, <laughs> I'm just like I I don't know how you make it work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really challenging. It is. You know? But I think it also, it kind of is like, it it's really hinges, I think, upon having a really strong community mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. your business, right? Because people are going to come to you and not be shitty about prices because they know that you're doing the best you can for everyone. And people are going to come to you to sell their clothes rather than putting them on Poshmark or just donating Mm -hmm. them or taking them to a place like the Buffalo Exchange because they know that it's this community hub for one and it will be meaningful to someone else in the community. And on top of that, you're going to do the best you can to give them a good situation. And I think that that is like something I love about secondhand is when when it's going right, it can be a big community builder. Yeah. Whereas no one's like, wow, I sure am really into the torrid community. <laughs> well, maybe they are, maybe. but probably not. <laughs> maybe. You know, <laughs> like maybe they have a subreddit or something, but that's like it. Like it's not like a community hub where people are like thinking about how, you know, shopping there has this bigger impact at all, right? I, yeah. Um, or being a part of, like, people are thinking about being a part of Torrid. Yeah. They're, it's transactional. Right, it is. Yeah. yeah, and I, that's, again, what I love about this business specifically, um, what gives me, mm-hmm. you know, why I come and I work so hard um, for it. It's it's for the business, but it's for the community, because of the community, and that was also what got me through COVID was people's support and sending love and, you know, supporting us any way they could. Um, and people do come in and they're, they say that, um, you know, sometimes people have brought their clothing in and then they donate, maybe they made some money, but they ended up donating it back to the store. Or we just had someone come in yesterday where some, they paid off. We, we have a layaway program and so she came in and said, is there someone who, you know, could benefit by um, me paying off their layaway? And she did that for someone that, you know, oh, and I love yeah, that. I mean, we really, uh, we have a lot of examples of that, um, you know, so yeah, there are, it really, people are really dedicated and um, even if they don't know who the person is, they know it's it's important and they know that we know them so that we can help, you know, Mm -hmm. help other people out. Um, And so, yeah, it's really special. And it's also kind of echoes a lot of, you know, you've brought up um, over, especially around the holidays, you know, supporting small businesses. And I just think the impact of small businesses in particular, um, you know, it impacts the family or person who owns it, but it, it 
also impacts our immediate community a lot more than a big corporation does. Oh, for sure. Especially if we're talking about like positive. Yeah. Impacts, well, yes, right? like, yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely point. agree. And I think that there are all of these positive outcomes that are, you know, are kind of like a side effect of small business that have nothing to do with money mm-hmm. at all that are, you know, and it really comes back to that, like community, yeah. like being engaged in the immediate physical community in the area, but also like building a community around mm-hmm. it of customers and eventually friends. And I just, I, I think that nobody, like, once again, like nobody's like, oh, I'm a really big, strong part of like the Best Buy community. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, no, <laughs> right. right? Um, and I think that there's all this human connection just hearing yeah. that your your customers would use the money they made to pay off a stranger's layaway because they knew yeah. it would be really good for that person yeah. um, and they could have an immediate positive impact in someone. Yes. I mean, that is incredible right. because so much of our – like so much business, especially big business, is really – it's it's based on distrust mm-hmm. and – like individuality and anonymity. And so small business is kind of the exact opposite of that. It really is. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. 
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender-fluid, size-inclusive, and high-quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So I don't know if we actually mentioned this yet, which I think is really important to call out, that uh, Two Big Blondes is a plus-size consignment yes. store, which makes it even more unique and even more integral to the community surrounding mm-hmm. it. Because this is like con- consignment stores, not a lot of them these days, already a rare bird. Mm-hmm. But then on top of it being plus-size focused, I mean, this is like, this is a unicorn, right? It is a unicorn, especially because be, even beyond that, um, 
I mean, that we've been around for so long, um, but we're really lucky because we are in this space that um, is owned by a family that owned it, you know, way back into the 40s and 50s. Um, now the grandkids own it. And so they give me really good, decent rent. Um, so I have yay. <laughs> yay. another thing that's a unicorn in Seattle. And um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's we, so we have like the sales floor is probably 4000 square feet. And we have wow. like six to pre-COVID, we were up to about 10,000 items in the store any given time. Now we're more like six or 7,000 items, but it's a lot. And so to, to have the variety that we have, variety of styles, um, we serve a really super diverse um, customer base and di- I mean diversity in every way. And so that's exciting because we have the space to do that. You know, a lot of consignment shops are mm-hmm. really small bec- and they have a very, you mm-hmm. know, small, their own niche that they're serving. Um, but yeah, I'm and I'm glad you brought that up because um, I was thinking too about the economics of it and there being more, whether it's consignment shop or just resale, um, specifically for plus size and fat fashion, um, while there is more springing up and people are able to, you know, reach reach communities through social media, Instagram, lives online, um, it is a challenging business. Nobody's making tons mm-hmm. of money off of this if they're making any money at all. Um, and so yeah. I think that's understanding that um, from a customer point of view is really important because when we do price things, we're not pricing them to, you know, um, we're not making hundreds of dollars on every item, right? We're pricing them just to like cover expenses. Um, And that's, if it may not even cover expenses. So. um, Right. Right. Yeah. No, trust me, the profit margin you're working with is significantly lower than any like brand new product retailer out there, you know, it is, it is a challenge. And I think that there is a lot of, I don't know. It's the fact that this is like a misconception at all is ridiculous, but people think that people are getting rich off of selling secondhand clothing and like even thread ups not profitable. So how do you expect like small businesses and individuals to just be like buying a yacht? Exactly. I saw something last, it was recently about thread up, um, you know, in one quarter now, you know, I might get these numbers wrong, but it was something like $75 million. They might become profitable, you know, and I'm like, if they're, <laughs> if their quarterly revenue is $75 million and they're not even profitable yet, like in a way. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'll just like say, you know, like my job before the pandemic was working for a rental company. And that's another business model that's really hard to be profitable in because there is so much like touch of hand, like human hand involved in running that business day to day. It's very similar to selling secondhand, especially thread up where, I mean, you have to take a photo of right. photos of right. everything, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to inspect everything. Mm-hmm. And in rental, not only do you have to inspect it when it goes out, you have to inspect it when it comes back in and you have to do the laundry and then you have to inspect it again and then someone has to put it away. And it's like, it's just a lot of manpower, yes. you know, to get things yeah. going. And, you know, like when I look at the thread up business model, I'm just like, I don't know how you could, I don't know how you make that profitable because 
the more stuff you sell to cover your expenses, the more people have to be involved to get that stuff ready mm -hmm. to sell. And so it just sounds like a paperwork nightmare to me. Like I, your business hard enough to figure out, but theirs, like I just, you know, it's way, way out of my league. It's too stressful. Um, but I don't also like, I don't want them to fail because I want people to see like these big companies that like there is, there is potential in secondhand and maybe we don't need to make all these new clothes. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a long yeah. way off, but you know, any success we see is good. Right. Um, I would prefer that people shop from secondhand from, you know, small businesses, individuals yeah. for sure over thread up any day of the week, but I'll, I'll take what I right. can get. Right. You know? It's still secondhand. Yeah. It's still secondhand. So something that comes up constantly in conversations about secondhand, and I know this isn't going to surprise you, not just because I already told you you're going to talk about <laughs> this, but is that, you know, like, there is not a lot of good, good quality secondhand clothing in larger sizes. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all agree that starts with the fact that there's just not a lot of great clothing in larger sizes to begin right. with. But then again, you have all this inventory. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, it is out there. I mean, do you have advice for people who feel that they just cannot find secondhand clothing in plus sizes? Um, I mean... That is a, is a major challenge. Um, I mean, it's starting with um, the fact that it's so hard to find to begin with that people hold on to their mm -hmm. clothing much longer. And so often mm -hmm. by the time they're ready to pass it on, it's not in a shape that is great for resale. Um, however, that goes back to what you're saying earlier, like as um, we, you know, I hope the secondhand, um, becomes more popular that people will think about that. Um, if, if it becomes an option for them to resell it, then they're more likely to do that when it's still in good shape. Um, yeah, and then, yeah. right. Where do you go? Cause like I said before, people come in our store and they cry because they're like, I wish we had this where I, where I live. Um, and certainly there's a market for it. Um, mm -hmm. but is it the right market in terms of you know, being profitable as a business, right? And um, getting mm -hmm. enough good inventory. Um, I, right now, if someone is, um, especially younger people, or if you're on social media, there are amazing number of small businesses just doing their own thing. Um, so if you find a style that you like, you can find people that are selling it on Instagram and, um, other probably TikTok and other social media sites. Um, and, you know, other, it, it is harder to do, um, but it's also, you know, it's that commit, it's not that it's not out there, but you do have to take more time. So obviously it's way faster to go on Shein or Amazon and, you know, buy something mm -hmm. and get it delivered the next day. But when you do that, you have to think about what are the um, side effects of that, you know, those choices that we make, yeah. right. Versus like taking a yeah. little bit more time, but finding higher quality, it's often, you know, um, more unique and, um, will last longer. Um, so yeah, you, you kind of have to make a commitment to it. And that's, you know, this has one of been our biggest challenges. We have a lot of great inventory in store, but I want to expand. We have a small online shop that we started during COVID, um, I need a website upgrade. I only have a probably about five to 600 items up there right now, but we have thousands in the store, as I mentioned. Um, so 
Mm-hmm. I am working on it's a project I'm working on this year, getting a better space and getting our all of our websites updated and um, so that I can more efficiently put stuff up online. But it does uh, obviously that takes time and money and effort. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be able to, whereas one person can come in and find 10 items and that they in the store and sell, you know, they walk out the door and spend a couple hundred dollars online. It might be a one-off here and there. So you know, it's definitely a challenge as, as we, I want to be able to make our inventory available to more people, um, you mm-hmm. know, both from a business point of view, but, you know, also just to have that available for more people, but it does cost more money. It's, it's so much work. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you've done it, you just cannot, you have no grasp of how much time it takes yeah. because it's not even just like taking the photo of the clothes, yeah. right? It's like you got to get it on the website and it's every single item is its own project. Yes, it is. And it's, it's, and it's, especially plus size. So, I mean, getting into the challenges of that is like, um, you know, thread up, for example, I was on there the other day because I needed to get something for my mom and she's, you know, smaller. So we didn't have anything at our store and I thought I'd go on there and there's, you know, they have like three photos and a, not much of a description. Um, oh, and the measurements are always, almost yeah, always wrong. Yeah. And I yeah. did order a few things and the quality was not that great. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was fine, but, um, it, it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, it wasn't, to my standard. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I really want, um, our webs, you know, for selling online, I want to be able to put measurements because, you know, sizing, especially for plus size is all over the place. What does a three X mean? Mm-hmm. You know, if you know the brand, you might know it, but if you don't know the brand, so doing measurements, um, you know, it's great when people can do photos on real people, but that, you know, obviously is another expense. Um, and enough of a description that people know what they're getting. I absolutely have to do returns because, um, just because it's a one X or two X and that's what you normally wear. doesn't mean it's going to fit you in the right places. Every brand has totally. different proportions. So, you know, you have to offer returns and, I want to use our experience and our 26 years of knowledge around this stuff to offer a good um, shopping experience for customers. But again, all those things add up. It's, it's no easy project. I mean, anybody who is reselling online is working really hard. Yes, I agree. Uh, it's it's unseen labor, but it is a lot more work than anyone who hasn't done it thinks. One more thing I wanted to add about... Um, having more options online and just um, mm-hmm. sec- buying secondhand becoming more acceptable. One of the latest trends I've seen is more and more brands doing their own resale sites. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's a great way to get people to think about buying secondhand when they had not thought of it before. Because for example, if you really love, um, I mean, Eileen Fisher has been doing it for years. Um, so they're a great um, kind of role model in that trend. If you're used to buying um, that brand and then you go on their website and you say, oh, they have something like this and it's secondhand and it's a third of the cost. Well, you know, maybe ch- I'll check that out. Um, and I know that's a growing business. A lot of brands are announcing resale sites. 
um, it'll be interesting to see if they find that that is worth it to them um, for their, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's a profit in that or not. I think they also help kind of control that it's authentic if it's a, especially if it's a designer Mm -hmm. or premier designer brand, um, which of course is a challenge when you're working in secondhand. Um, but yeah, I think, I think people are trying a lot of things right now. I, obviously they're not all going to work out. Um, but I, I, I at least like that people are making attempt. However, then the problem is that when they don't succeed or something doesn't work out, it becomes, oh, that didn't work for them. So other brands say, oh, I'm not going to try it. Uh Right. Uh And I think that's also, Yeah, 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 that's also happening in the plus size, um, market where, for example, Old Navy, you know, made this big deal about, you know, having extended sizes, not only online, but in their stores. And they did a lot of things right on that, um, you know, presenting the the new lines and marketing. And then yet, it wasn't even a year later, and they were cutting, you know, cutting back on that line. Loft just announced they're not going to be making, you know, plus sizes anymore. So that's hot. So when you have such a small pool of examples to start with, and then they stop doing it, it just it scares everyone else off. So totally, totally. And I think like Old Navy is an interesting one to me because I read a ton of different articles and interviews about what went wrong, what went mm-hmm. right. And it was so interesting to me that Old Navy would abandon it after a year. Yeah. Because they put years of preparation into it. What happened there? I know. I know. So (laughs) they like, they did so many things the right way and they invested Mm -hmm. a lot of time and money into it up front. That's once again where I'm like, why did you just give up? Like they worked really hard to ensure that all sizes were the same price, which to me is the the standard and how it should be. But, you know, a, a lot of retailers do not. They charge an upcharge for larger sizes, um, which makes no sense to me because if we're going to charge based on size, then I guess even like a size large would be more expensive than a size small. Is that really how we want to run a business, right? Right. Um, And they did something that like I think is every store, I mean, department stores are still doing this, which bugs me, where they like tore down the wall and and Mm. between the plus department and like regular, whatever you want to call it, women's clothing. And now Mm. customers could shop just by style rather than size. And like, really, that should be also the standard, right? But most importantly, they spent two years, two years, and I don't even know how much money, it's probably so much money, we can't even imagine on the fit. And that's what it takes to get it right. And actually, I mean, I don't know if you heard anything, but I didn't find anything or hear anything about the fit being the problem. The fit was good. Yeah, um, I agree. And, right? But then yeah. where it went wrong, I, I mean, number one being that they just didn't give it enough time. Because these things take time. You have to gain the trust of your customer. Right. Right. And that's where so many of these companies go wrong is they think that they are just going to put the clothes out on the rack and everyone's going to come in and buy it and that'll be the end. And it takes so much more time than that. But- on top of that, they didn't really do their research in terms of like the ratio of sizes selling, right, by sales right. volume. And so mm-hmm. what happened is the sizes in the middle of the range sold out really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And they were left with a lot of inventory and the smallest sizes and the largest sizes, which to me is like a very, like, I'm shocked because I have in the past 
at one of my jobs at ModCloth, all of our planners basically came from Gap or Old Navy. Uh-huh. And they were so smart and so data-driven and so strategic. Like some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And I just assume that everybody who's working in the inventory planning areas of these companies are similar. And so I don't understand how they messed up the sizes so much, like in terms of how much they ordered. But yeah. then they, you know, they had customers coming in, not finding the sizes that they wanted, being really disappointed. Then they had to mark down all these extra units they had in the smallest and largest sizes. And then they were like, okay, we just give up. And I, I, I just can't believe they did that so fast. Yeah, it, it felt, felt like a betrayal <laughs> almost because yeah. it's... Really, and and also this was what this was like a year or two ago to twenty twenty one. I think this is like during not the a pandemic. great time for shopping. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like how many stores were even open? I mean, I guess they were, but um, yeah, it it very strange. I'd love to hear more of that backstory if it ever comes out. Um, it it's very strange that they didn't spend more time on it. Um, and yeah, just really disappointing because sure, you can, we make mistakes, but then you learn and you do better, you get better instead of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, they even could have been taking like pre-orders on the sizes they were sold out of, you know, and getting yes. to the customers. Like there are a million ways they could have made this better and gained the trust of their customer. Yeah. And also because Old Navy actually did have plus size, it wasn't like a completely new market already. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't, they expanded, um, their sizing and made it more available in stores. But they even prior to all this, they they were known as, you know, a good fit for at least a 1X, 2X, mm-hmm. um, maybe even 3X. So it, it, they could have really built on that rather than uh, just shutting it down. I know. Um, I know. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of the things I was reading and hearing were basically like, if Old Navy can't pull this off, then no right, one can. Because right. Old Navy, you know, their focus is dressing the whole family, right? So you're getting mm-hmm. everybody in there at once. And, it, you know, this would be a great ta- chance to really capitalize on dressing everyone in a family, right? Yeah. And also Old Navy's buying power and therefore power to yes. influence the entire industry right. is, is is massive. And so if Old Navy makes carrying, I want to say they were doing sizes double zero through 30, in everything. Mm-hmm. If yeah. Old Navy makes that the norm, then it will be the norm for the industry. And so them right. backpedaling is really, it's detri- it has this halo effect. Definitely. Um, really, really frustrating. And also, you know, another th- great thing about Old Navy that we we have to we have to call out is that it's it's a lot more affordable, right? It's like yes. I read one article that was sort of like talking about Old Navy and where it went wrong, but then saying like, but here it's going really well for universal standard. And I was like, that's not app that's apples and oranges because mm-hmm. the only thing they have in common is extended sizing, but the price point and the aesthetic are yeah, very different. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Right, right. And so I didn't think that that was a really fair comparison, but I would say something like Loft maybe would be. Right. So I'm not surprised that Loft pulled back on it, too. They probably also saw that Old Navy was. And unfortunately, that's how the industry works. It's all about copying one another, you know? It is. And and the Loft, the company that owned Loft, I think, was going through bankruptcy. Oh. Um, you know, so they're, they're going to, you know, but the fact that they cut back the plus size, I just think in general businesses if you're going to commit to something and try something like you said it it you know it 
you learn from mistakes and you, you know, is it a commitment to this or is this a trend? Oh, let's try this. Let's, let's do plus size um, for a little while. You see fast fashion brands getting into all kinds of things that they have no business getting into because they (laughs) require a lot more R&D and investment. Right. You know, like whether it's bras. I mean, I bought Mm. a bra from Forever 21 (laughs) one time and I mean, like I, why did it even exist? It was so terrible. Or like... All, you know, there was a while where, like, all of the fast fashion brands were like, oh, we're going to make l- bras and underwear now. Like, that's a trend. Yeah. And then it was, we're all going to make makeup brands, like mm-hmm. our own makeup and get into that. Mm-hmm. And who knows what would be next? It would be great if, like, they could just focus on getting things to fit better and last longer. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I do, you know, I, like, even thinking about loft, like, going into bankruptcy or Old Navy, investing all this time and money and walking away. I got to tell you, when I was at ModCloth... Our business had plateaued a long time ago, and what was really allowing us to grow was our our expansion into plus size and continuing to extend sizes in more and more stuff and build that assortment and make it more diverse Mm -hmm. um, and keeping it, like, you know, as affordable as possible. Like, that was what was driving our business. Yeah, Uh, and ModCloth has always been very popular with our you know, my customer base. So when it started coming in, um, you know, I love the kind of fun, trendy retro looks. And Mm -hmm. um, I think overall the fit was pretty good. I mean, they worked really hard on it. I will say anywhere I've worked, so many places I've worked, we would have fittings and it was like, well, it'll fit someone. And then we like, we're done for the day. But Mod Cloth would be like, we don't care if this order is three months late, we're going to get it right. Because we want to have our customers trust right like that was the thing everybody knew that like we had to take the time to do it right or we were never going to get a second chance yeah and that's why we had such a loyal customer base now i know after right around the time i left mod cloth they brought in a new ceo and he was very against the size expansion project Mm -hmm. um it, to me, it's no coincidence that he came from Urban Outfitters, honestly. And uh, then when they sold off to Walmart, I still think they were doing their best to continue to keep the sizes going. But I don't know how it's going now because they're on, they've been sold again to like a – or maybe oh, even two more they? times to like a private equity company. So I don't know. No one I know works there anymore. Mm-hmm. Like finally everyone's gone because mm-hmm. um, they laid so many people off. But – I always felt like ModCloth had this opportunity to like take over the world. <laughs> they because... they really did. Yeah. Yeah. It, it yeah. was it was specifically it was very... that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When they got they were sold to Walmart, I remember when I read that and talking to people about it and we're like, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's I know. gonna happen now? You know, my friends who were still there when that happened were actually like, you know what was cool is they were like, No, you just keep running as your own business. We're just going to help you with a lot of the logistical stuff that you really struggle with. Mm, So it actually made the business more efficient and things arrived on time. But they basically had, like, freedom to make whatever they wanted still. Um, But I think that, like, it, you know, Walmart was like, we're not getting, making the money we thought we were going to make. So Mm. uh, it's too bad. I think that. I, I hope that something that is mod cl- isn't mod cloth but is doing that same thing like emerges because mm-hmm. I think they also offered an aesthetic that you couldn't get in general but especially yeah. in extended sizes and mm-hmm. you know like I th- for a long time like the only places you could really get larger size clothing would be like Lane Bryant which is like a store for your mom 
<laughs> or a department store where the clothes would look like they were for your mom, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, it is. It's it's nice to have brands that are younger, trendier looks. Um, you know, have an extended sizes, but then you know we still have that challenge of, you know, but not fast fashion. <laughs> I know, that's... I know. So that was going to be my next question for you because one thing I have noticed for years now is that while these sort of like middle or middle market or more expensive brands have done everything they can to like not (laughs) dress people of more sizes like the Mm -hmm. fast fashion brands and like the ultra fast fashion brands like Mm -hmm. Shein have been like on it from day one yeah they have yeah and no wonder people are buying it right I I know I know I mean do you see a lot of that coming into the store um, yeah, we do see it. I mean, definitely more And that, you know, I've been here for 10 years now, so it's definitely increased as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And, um, I will be honest, I'm not completely settled on what to do about it. Um, <laughs> cause I mean, even from the time I started, there were some, um, brands we didn't take that were sort of lower end, um, target Walmart stuff, even old Navy um, for a while. And, um, I haven't been so great at sort of updating, um, you know, as new, new brands have come in, like, do we take them? Do we not take them? There's this challenge between definitely like if, again, if we mostly price based on original retail and something was $10, um, how do we price that? Right. And make it worth your time. Yeah. Make it worth our time and make it worth the consigner's time and, you know, all of that. So there's that combined with, well, especially, you know, Fashion Nova and Shein and um, some Forever 21, they do have fun, young, trendy things that people want to buy. And um, I do feel like there's a level of, well, it's better that it gets resold and reused and mm-hmm. used again than it going to a landfill or, or you know, a dumpster somewhere or, you know, Ghana. Um, you know, so it's, there's, <laughs> that, there's that challenge. Um, so we do take some of it, um, but I, I try to be really mindful of that as well because we obviously don't want our whole store to... The, one we can't definitely cannot make a profit on just reselling that, but also no. we want we want people to come in and feel like oh these this is quality stuff. Yeah, uh, but it's it's fun to have a few you know you know let's oh let's throw this on cheap and fun and I'm gonna wear mm-hmm. it to a party um kind right. of kind of stuff too. So um I'm not I don't feel a hundred percent that you know I have the right answer to that. Um, but I do try to really be conscious of it in terms of both um, having a wide variety of styles and, and trends, but also um, not letting it flood our store because we do want high quality, um, right. reasonable things. Yeah. Right. I mean, so like if someone comes in with a whole bunch of Shein or Forever 21 or what have you, mm-hmm. what do you do? And like, do they end up taking the stuff with them? Are they sort of like, oh, mm-hmm. you can just have it? Like, what happens usually? Yeah, so people have a choice when they bring us their consignment. They can either, um, we'll go through it, the th- items we take, they, uh, you know, we'll go on to consignment. The items we don't take, they can choose to pick up and do whatever they want with it, or they can choose to donate it through our nonprofit. Um, 
And so the vast majority of items that are donated are um, get into somebody's hands somehow. Um, and so that they're not, you know, just ending up in the garbage or ending up, um, you know, it's, it's going to somebody that will wear it. Um, and so it is being reused in that way. Um, mm -hmm. We have some things that are just too stained or too, you know, just too damaged. I will, I, I try to sort that out. We sort that out and it'll go to some sort of textile um, recycling. Um, I'm actually really excited because one of the ways I want to expand my business a bit is to support sustainable fashion through other ways, not just reselling mm -hmm. secondhand clothing, but also through mending or, you know, learning about um, how to take care of your clothes. You did a great um, uh, series on that with Maggie Green and Tracy Pride, I believe, about, you know, the ways to launder and, you know, um, keep mm -hmm. things fresh and looking good. Um, but also I'm just had a local designer, fashion designer come in and she's going to be using some of the textiles for, to launch her uh, line of um, clothing that's made from all, you know, upcycled um, and repurposed fabrics. So that's exciting. So there's other ways to use, you know, the fabrics that come in. Um, but it is a challenge because ultimately it's, these items are cheaply made. The fast fashion is cheaply mm -hmm. made and low quality, um, fabrics. And at some point it's not going to be wearable or reusable. Um, so I, in the perfect world, they just wouldn't even exist in the first place, but, um, it's, it's there. So what are we going to do? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's yeah. just really unfortunate. It's, it's. A perfect mm -hmm. storm of all kinds of bad things all at once uh, that allow yes. Shein to be like the best option for so many yes. people, you yes. know. I, 100%. Um, and it's like not a good deal for anyone, no matter how much they pay for it. It's just, it's just not great. I, the thing that strikes me is I see so much Shein at the thrift stores. It was like I'd mm -hmm. never seen it, but I'd heard of it. And then one day I saw a piece, and then it was like the floodgates opened. Yes. And now every time I go thrifting, I see more and more. And one thing that I notice is that the vast majority still has the tags on it. Mm -hmm. And that made me right. wonder if the sizing wasn't good. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think all the clothes, I mean, that's even worse than Shein is like all the clothes that come through Amazon. Oh, um, seriously. <laughs> that is like, yeah. I would say if I had to choose between the two for myself, I would pick Shein because the Amazon yeah. clothes are shocking. Yes. Shocking. So like at least she and three X, there's a four X I think could probably fit 24, 26. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you know, you'll get a, an, a garment that says three X and it won't even fit a 14, you know, that clearly mm -hmm. came, you know, came through China or Asia somewhere and through probably through Amazon. Um, and those are the ones too, that we're really probably won't be taking, um, for for our store, um, just because it's the sizing is off, the cut the fit is off, um, and just the quality is so low. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's like it's it's really really bad. The Amazon stuff is like I don't even understand it. 
Um, and I think that the Amazon, you know, Amazon's the largest clothing retailer in the United States now. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a big part of it is driven by all this, like, random stuff that is, like, not real brands, right? That is often, like, copies of nicer yes. things, right? Mm -hmm. um, even down to, like, stealing the photography from the original brand. But yep. uh, I think how the business keeps rolling is that Amazon spends so much money on, like, affiliate articles. So, like, every day BuzzFeed will have something that's, like, the 10 best summer dresses from Amazon or, like, Refinery29 or BuzzFeed. I mean, any of them, yeah. any of the platforms will be, like, more stuff you could buy from Amazon and it will look appealing in the picture. And you're like, oh, well, this website is saying I should buy it. And yeah. then you go read the reviews and it's like <laughs> scandalous. I don't know <laughs> how they take those photos. They must like take a really good garment and take the photos and then do reproductions. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah. you probably know better than me. But when you see what comes in the in the yeah. package it's like what is this not even the same thing i mean How i love when people post photos of what they got in the reviews yeah. <laughs> um because i definitely yeah. will i apple news serves me articles like that all the time listicles mm. i guess what they really are and yeah like, sometimes it'll be like i'm feeling really trolly today like let's go see what <laughs> they're trying to sell me and you know i actually like i don't know something that helps me really relax is reading product reviews <laughs> <laughs> or reviews on Google Maps, honestly. Just reviews. I love hearing people, what people talk about in reviews. And the reviews for these clothes are always pretty ridiculous. Like, the pictures yeah. are funny. Um, yeah. But, yeah, like, I like sizing was already compl complicated enough, like, 10 years ago. But it's just, like, who knows what size anything is at all ever at this point. And, you at know, all ever. Yeah. yeah, at all ever. On the sizing, it's a, um, obviously a challenge for us as things come in because... They come in with so many different sizes and um, mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? What does a 1X mean? What does a 3X mean? Um, and we, and how do you organize that in the right. store by size, right? Yeah. So we actually change most of, um, most of the sizes into numbers. So like our, we start at size 14 and go up to as high as we get in. Mm -hmm. um, we do some, right now we have up to a 9X, um, but we, we, mostly have up to like 34, 38s. Um, and so if, uh, we'll have a 1X, let's just say from, um, uh, Lane Bryant, well, Lane Bryant does numbers, but like a Torrid one, it mm -hmm. technically is one X, they call that a 14, 16. So we'll put it under 14 W 14s, but, um, a one X in, you know, one of these other, you know, fast fashion brands that might not even be a 14, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, we'll have, uh, let's say, Women Within is a, a brand specifically for plus sizes. And they have like their 2X is a 26W. So we wow, we try. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, a, lot yeah, of it's a really big difference. <laughs> So yeah. we do try to change it to what we think, or we know certain brands run small. So we'll like, it'll say three X, but we'll put it under 16 W because you know, 16 women's. Um, but then even within the 16s, there's straight size 16s and then uh, women's 16. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. We, we, that's part of our customer service is saying, well, let's try up and down the size, you know, because what fits is, you know, all over the place. Um, but that is uh, a big 
problem. And another uh, hard part about putting things online is like, I want to be accurate about what the label says, but I also want people to be able to find the clothes that fit them. So how do you choose, you know, what category to put this under? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. I always tell people like, okay, well, you need to, you really need to like measure comparable clothes and compare the measurements. Like that's usually the best because sometimes even measuring your body isn't exactly going to be right either, depending on how the, the garment is cut. But I mean, Shopping for clothing online, no matter what size you are, is a really risky endeavor at this point because, like, sizing means nothing. I can't, like, emphasize that enough to people that, like, the size you wear means nothing, you know? Uh, And and then, like, to to hear that, like, well, one retailer's, like, one brand's 1X is another person's, like, 4X or something is just Mm -hmm. feels like my brain's going to explode. And and yet we're so tied to those numbers. It's, I know. it's amazing when people walk in and they say, "Well, what? I'm I'm a size 16," and you know, you you might encourage them to try different sizes because of that exact reason, and they're just adamant. No, no, no. I'm I'm not a 18. I'm not a 20. You know, and just the societal pressures that we've grown up with and internalized, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's really tough to, you know, but we we really strive to meet people at where they're at. I mean, that is a big part of our, our community here as well. Um, People are very, I was talking about diversity in customers. It's like we have a diversity in where we are with accepting our bodies, um, Mm -hmm. feeling comfortable. One person is, feels great wearing crop tops and, you know, showing a lot of skin and other people are just very modest. And I mean, not it's not just about modesty, um, you know, for showing skin, but they're just how comfortable they want right. to cover their roles. They want to, you know, so, um, you know, that's another special thing about this place is that it's we're we're here. We want to make people feel good in the clothes that they're wearing, wherever they're at with that. And we, we encourage trying different things, but if someone's not into that, that's fine too. If they know what they like, then, you know, we're going to try to find that for them too. I love that. And that's yet another reason to shop with a small business really. Yes. Because you're going to get that extra help because shopping for clothing, I think has been really commodified and systemized where like, especially in the e-commerce area where just like you're filling your cart, you're checking out, Mm -hmm. never communicate with another person. And to be fair, I am the person at the grocery store who uses the self checkout because I'm (laughs) so introverted in public. But like, I do think, you know, all of this like service and support that you provide is it, it, it's incomparable, right? It's it's something that you can't even put a value on from like a price perspective. But I mean, helping people navigate through clothing, there's so much trauma associated with shopping. There's no way that the inconsistency mm-hmm. of sizing doesn't have an impact on our mental health mm-hmm. because, you know, society has taught us that we should be hung up on what size we wear, right? And I think right. having someone there to help you through that and also respect your comfort boundaries, I think is, mm-hmm. is just so remarkable and so special. And I can see why your community is so devoted. It's ironic because the thing that would work the best for sizing is knowing our measurements. And yet, mm-hmm. especially in the plus size community, but I, I think probably all 
people who have been raised as women and, and females feel this, especially that it's hard, you know, being measured has a lot of stigma to that, whether you're happy or, or not happy with that number. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been given us, you know, a value, which it shouldn't. I mean, it has a numerical value, but it shouldn't have a good, bad value. Right. Um, it should just and, be a way to find the right, like the clothing that fits. Exactly. That should be it. But like, yeah. we can all agree that for many of us, myself included, there is so much baggage behind it that yes. I could talk about it yes. for like six hours and exactly. still not have gotten yeah. it all out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think it's, it's really, really complicated. It's just like the industry doesn't do a disservice by making it more painful more traumatic and less accessible. It's just like, I, you know, I've, there's been a lot of content specifically this week on NPR about uh, social media's impact on our brains Mm. and our mental health. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I see all of that, but can we talk about uh, how shopping for clothing Mm. is so traumatic too? Yeah. 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 And I do like, man, I think, uh, if there were a way we could disconnect ourselves from the numbers on the tape measure, uh, yeah. it, would, it would free us up to think about so many other things and feel so much happier. But I don't have an easy so solution for that at all, except no. for like we reboot society, like turn it off and turn it back on again or something. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And just do what we can to support one another and make one another feel feel val- valued and no matter what size they are, you know, that they're great yeah. Um, yeah. because size exactly. doesn't mean anything. Um, exactly. Well, this was such a great conversation. Um, I Do you have any final thoughts, words of wisdom? Yeah, I mean, I could talk forever. It's it's obviously, you know, my <laughs> like, the last 10 years, my passion and something I think about almost 24-7. Uh, definitely the many, many hours I put in. But, um, you know, not too much. Um, I just, yeah, I want to thank you for having this conversation, um, for the great content that you put out, um, having us think about all these issues. I've learned a lot myself, um, from your podcasts and your posts. And, um, yeah, I just, I think that just in general, that if we just take a little bit more time and are a little bit more thoughtful about our, you know, purchasing choices that um, we can find. It takes a little bit more work, but that we can find some great um, finds, affordable, unique, uh, great quality things that will last. And um, and that's really important part of, you know, thinking about our environment and mm-hmm. longevity of, of, the, of all of that. I think that like the, the time and the slowing it down is really important, whether you're shopping brand new clothes or secondhand, right? It's It really is imperative. And sometimes when I'm like falling asleep at night, I will just be like scrolling Reddit and basically fall asleep doing it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. a few nights ago, and I need to go back and figure out where I saw it. I read an article that someone posted that was basically like, you know, the thing about the eight hour work day or, you know, salary jobs where you work 10, 12 hours, where like the goal is you're supposed to work as much as possible, right? Is Mm -hmm. that it pushes people into more consumerism because they don't have time or the perception of time to slow things down and take their time with what they buy or don't Mm -hmm. buy. And, you know, it also forces them into consuming other things just because they don't have time, whether it's like takeout food, you know, Mm -hmm. or services that they pay for. Um, It really like our economy as it exists right now sort of 
relies on us never having enough time for ourselves. It's true. Or time to think about it. And I know that that is a big ask to ask someone to say, hey, just take a, just slow it down a little bit with when you're shopping for clothing. But I promise that it won't be as agonizing as you think. And you're going to be happier ultimately with what you end up with. I agree. And I, I do, I hate to make it sound like it's always the individual choice because ultimately whether it's climate change and like you said, it's the structure of our work life that it's really the responsibility of corporations and governments to help, you know, solve these problems. It's, it's not all just on the individual. I think that's really important to point out, but Mm -hmm. yes, the choices we make do make an impact as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it all adds up. And I think, you know, Amazon being the number one apparel retailer in the United States did not happen just because of Amazon. Many, many of us were along for that ride. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. This was delightful. Thank you, Amanda. This was very delightful. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this and hope that, you know, um, it'll be a good part of the ongoing conversation about secondhand and you know plus size fashion as well i mean my hope is that it's going to inspire more people to open a consignment store honestly if even (laughs) one person listens to this and says i'm going to open a consignment store then we have been successful (laughs) yeah um i I agree i mean again i see a lot of you know potential there and i do ultimately think that um, the success of secondhand and consignment stores and all of that is going to depend on a bit of a um, an awakening of what the value is of what we're buying and that yeah. the value isn't just based on, as we said, um, the original retail, but the value in and of itself and the labor that also goes into that. Thanks to Lisa for spending so much time with me. I am going to link to all things Two Big Blondes in the show notes. And all week on Instagram, I'll be sharing size-inclusive secondhand resellers. One last thing I want to discuss is something I mentioned at the end of our conversation. This idea that hustle culture, that long work days, even just the eight-hour workday actually feeds our economy by making us shop more as a coping mechanism. I've been thinking a lot for months now about the link between work, specifically the culture of overtime and sacrifice that is expected by many employers and how that impacts our mental health and therefore our consumption habits. I mean, it doesn't help that I have had a really brutal year of my job And it has had a major impact on my mental health. And I mean that in a very negative way. And I have had to do a lot of work to not let that lead to shopping, you know, just trying to make myself feel better. Like I've had to find other ways to feel better, right? Our jobs have a major impact on our mental health and our physical well-being because We spend most of our waking hours at work. Sometimes when I think about that, I get so depressed. But it's true. If you work a full-time job, you spend most of your waking hours working. 
In my own experience working in some really toxic environments, I have seen how feeling tired, stressed, demoralized from my job makes me buy a ton of stuff to make myself feel better. Clothes, cocktails, dinners. It's Somehow it's always sushi. Has anyone noticed that? I don't know. Electronics, you name it. Stuff. I've cited my worst job ever, even in this episode. And, you know, I was working for a so-called feminist brand. And man, when I think about how I felt when I worked there, I just get this feeling of illness, a pain, like a knot in my stomach, you know, just this pain behind my eyes that doesn't go away. And I try not to think about it too much because it had such a negative impact on my physical and mental health. But I had no work-life balance. My boss would text me at midnight expecting a response. She would scream at me on Saturday for not working. It was all of the just hallmarks of a terrible work environment. Most days, I only had time to eat, shower, work, and sleep. Nothing else. The work environment was incredibly volatile, very emotionally abusive. I felt like I was walking on eggshells Every moment that I was working, it was just like my heart was pounding all day. Like, what will happen next? What will happen next? Over time, I actually felt as if I'd lost control of my own life. And this is something that has happened repeatedly in my career. It's not the only toxic job I've had. It's not the only place I've worked where I was expected to sacrifice every aspect of my life for my employer. Every time I've experienced this, it leads to self-harm behaviors on my part, over shopping, drinking too much, drugs, uh, starving myself. I always get in really into like controlling what I eat and do as a proof that I somehow own my life still. I've been thinking about putting together an episode about this topic, about the link between work and consumerism. But I, I've been thinking about it, you know, for months, and I've just been struggling to see the outline of it all. As I've mentioned, I'm currently in a cycle of very long and stressful work days, and I just have barely had time to think very much about Clothes Horse. And then last week, as I was laying in bed, doom scrolling Reddit, that's how I relax. I mean, other than reading reviews on Amazon, right? I came across a 2014 opinion piece from Business Insider called the real reason for the 40-hour work week. It's by someone named David Kane. I can't find him anywhere on the internet. I wanted to check and make sure he wasn't a misogynist, a transphobe, a creep, a MAGA dude, a sex, a sex pest, anything bad like that. Couldn't find any of that. He just has like disappeared. But man, this essay is so good. I'm going to share it in the show notes. And it really helped me start piecing together what I want to talk about. In this piece, Kane muses, the eight-hour workday is too profitable for big business, not because of the amount of work people get done in eight hours, but because it makes for such a purchase-happy public. Keeping free time scarce means people pay a lot more for convenience, gratification, and any other relief they can buy. That really strikes a chord, right? I know it did with me. He goes on to say, The culture of the eight-hour workday is big business's most powerful tool for keeping people in the same dissatisfied state where the answer to every problem 
is to buy something. For the economy to be healthy, America has to remain unhealthy. Healthy, happy people don't feel they need much they don't already have. Healthy, happy people don't feel like they need much they don't already have. And that means they don't buy a lot of junk. They don't need to be entertained as much. And they don't end up watching a lot of commercials. You know, I've been obsessing for years over the link between hustle culture and the concept of treat yourself slash retail therapy. There's, it's no coincidence that they became memes at the same time, right? Go read the piece. I'm going to share it in the link. It's full of bangers like this, but I think he really hits on what I want to talk about for this upcoming episode. And I want to hear from all of you. Let's talk about the connection between mental health, work, and shopping. Have you worked for a company with a toxic internal culture? How did you cope with it? How did it impact what you did outside of work and where you spent your money? Have you experienced work-related burnout? And did you find yourself shopping more to make yourself feel better? Have you found yourself rewarding yourself with treats and other spending as a means of coping with work pressure? I really feel that one. Do you find yourself buying things, paying for services, buying, buying things and paying for services because you don't have time outside of work to do things on your own? If any of this resonated with you, if you have any thoughts on any of this, you can share them via a voice memo. You just record that on your phone or you can write it all out in an email. You send it to amanda at closehorse.world and the deadline for that is Friday, June 23rd. So you have a little bit less than two weeks to get it together. Just want to reiterate here that I'm not looking for guests. I just want a chance to share your thoughts in the episode to round out the conversation. Well, that's all I have for today. It is currently 95 degrees and sunny. And in order to record, I have to turn off the air conditioning and the fan. So I am racing the clock to stop recording. Um, I'm, I feel the sweat forming around. I think my eyes are sweating a little bit. <laughs> so that's all I have for this week. Um, of course, I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you liked what you're hearing, you can leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. We're talking about a lot of stuff here, and I want them to hear about it too. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast. I just wanted to welcome a new Pegasus supporter this week, Deco Denim. You'll hear their little blurb with the other small businesses that support Close Horse. Thank you. If you want to be just like them, go check out my Patreon. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music, our audio support, for letting me turn off the air conditioning when it's 95 degrees outside, and so much more. All right, that's all for this week. Bye. Bye.